Welcome to the latest edition of the Global Regulatory Update podcast series. I'm Richard Gray. I'm the Director of Regulatory Affairs here at the IAF. And today's topic is a very topical one, to use a pun, uh, is crypto asset regulation. And we're actually going to be focusing particularly on the final standard for the prudential treatment of crypto asset exposures that was published by the Basel Committee in December 2022. And I'm very pleased to be joined in this discussion by John Ho, who is Global Head of Legal Financial Markets for Standard Chartered Bank. Welcome, John, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having me and uh, pleased to be here. And thank you for joining us. And uh, I, th- I think by way of background, John, before I get into some questions of you, for people's benefit, the crypto asset regulatory space has been very active in the last two or three years in particular. We've gone through two formal consultations with the Basel Committee that have led to the final standard that was released, as I said, in December 2022. There have been very active working groups that John and I joined on with a a group of other trades and a large number of uh, industry members. It's been a very collaborative and proactive uh, approach that the industry's taken, but also collaborative with the regulators. It's resulted in a final standard that has... uh, uh, a lot of interesting elements. There's been a lot of changes from the different proposals in consultation one and consultation two, which was encouraging. But to be fair, I think it's uh, fair to say it still remains fairly conservative, but that's understandable as well, given the volatility in the crypto asset market and the amount of um, media attention that's been uh, placed on it. And we'll be going into some of that as we work through here. By that way of background, I'd like to Starting to the questions, John, and as an opening broad question for you, what are your general impressions of that consultation process that we've gone through, and in particular the final standard for the prudential treatment of crypto assets that has been published? Thanks, Richard. I think the first thing I wanted to talk about was the consultation that that started off from the the Basel Committee, the BCBS. Uh, It resulted in the final standards following two consultations, And I think one thing I'd like to say, the first general impression is that the regulators have actually taken on board where applicable and relevant industry feedback from trade association in particular, from IIF, from ISDA, JFMA, and a number of international setting bodies to create what we think is a balanced, well-taught approach. And what they seek to do is to ensure banks maintain adequate capital and liquidity for the exposures to crypto assets and having regard to uh, operational standards and, and ensuring that, that there is a comprehensive framework for the prudential regulation of exposures to crypto assets by banks. Now, the publication of these crypto standards is timely because as we speak, it happened almost around the same time of, of crypto winter and also just about a, a month after the FTX collapse in November. The recent events in the crypto sector have strongly fueled debate around the need for further regulations in global standards, including in particular prudential standards such as capital requirements that bank needs to hold in order to undertake crypto asset activity. Now, in general, banks will benefit for greater clarity, certainty, now that the Basel Committee have finalized its prudential standards on the treatment of bank exposure to crypto assets. The crypto standards is effective immediately, but given that it does not have the force of law on its own, 
the Basel Committee has requested for national regulators around the world to implement these crypto standards, credential standards, by the 1st of January 2025. Okay, John, that's um, a good overview of the, of the process we've gone through and the benefit, or what, I guess what the regulators are trying to achieve. What I'd like to do is now start to dig down into some of the specifics. And, and given we are going to go into some of the specifics, I should say at the outset that John has agreed to join us and discuss this today, but they are his views and they do not reflect the views of his employer or his organisation. So, John, I hope I, I covered that well because I, I, I want you to feel free to, to speak uh, about this because there are some areas that have created a lot of interest and in, in it is an area that's fairly topical, as I said. One particular area I want to start with is the infrastructure risk add-on which um, was introduced in the second consultation and was seen as quite a contentious proposal in that draft standard by industry. Now, to the committee's credit, uh, as you said, they took on some of the comments and feedback that was received and they've ended up amending the approach that was originally proposed as a required risk weight add-on to one which is now at the discretion of local supervisors, so a lot more flexibility there. What do you feel about this approach uh, to this uh, infrastructure risk add-on? And, and more broadly, as a global bank, can you see any issues arising from this approach, uh, such as fragmentation? Thank you, Richard. I think the infrastructure risk add-on for benefit of the audience uh, was initially proposed by BCBS, uh, partly because they were concerned uh, about emerging technologies such as blockchain and DLT that might present novel risks that, that currently is not well captured in the banking sector if banks undertake such activities. Henceforth, the original proposal in the earlier consultation was to propose a 2.5% risk-weighted asset infrastructure add-on that would apply to Group 1 crypto assets. For those of you who are not familiar with Group 1 crypto assets, these are relating to traditional assets that are tokenized there's going to be a 2.5% surcharge on the use of DLT for traditional assets. Now, this provision, obviously, in the final standards has since been amended. The risk add-on, the infrastructure risk add-on, is no longer a default, i.e. it doesn't apply automatically. Instead, authorities now are empowered to activate such a infrastructure risk add-on based on observed weaknesses in the infrastructure on which particular crypto assets are based. Now, this is important to bear in mind that this is an important concession uh, and change that meets its way in the sort of final uh, prudential standards. And it does address the concerns that industry felt earlier when you had a, a default automatic risk add-on, they will make it commercial unviable for banks or other firms to hold or trade in group one crypto assets, such as tokenized securities, fiat-based stable coins. And I think one of the things that made its way is that if the infrastructure add-on were added as a default, it may set a precedent that applies what is effectively capital penalties for the introduction of new technologies and these may be deemed as a tax on innovation. I think to your point uh, that 
Now it is at the sort of option and discretion of, of national regulators that do transpose this crypto asset standards into their national uh, capital requirements. Now the issue one is a real one is, do we believe that every single regulator will adopt the same standards? What if a particular regulatory jurisdiction would to introduce the infrastructure reset on 2.5% on a particular DLT, but others don't? Henceforth, the risk of a fragmentation of approach is a real concern. Now, what is important is, is that regulators do engage private sectors and also continue to engage their counterparts globally whether to regulatory colleges, international setting bodies like FSB, BCBS, to ensure that there's a level playing field, consistency and approach with respect to how they approach uh, this particular kind of capital requirements. Now to mitigate the risk of fragmentation, global coordination, cooperation among public and private sector is key to create more awareness, education, and also understanding where risk lies. So as we speak today, obviously this uh, crypto asset standards is new. The infrastructure is add on is given as an option, but I think the jury is still out there whether this may create a fragmentation risk or where it's very targeted to certain types of DLT uh, that are not properly well designed, where there are any observed weaknesses that are obviously communicated by the regulators or, or you know, what we call audit setting bodies. I think that clarification and, and that clarity uh, for the adoption or utilisation of something like this is very, very important because, as you said, it was potentially quite dangerous, required precedent, and now there is that, that flexibility but how it's applied and, and the information that's provided for its application will be critical. I think and we t later on we'll circle about, you mentioned some of the different approaches potentially that jurisdictions will take. We'll circle back a bit later. I'd like to talk about the different approaches that some jurisdictions have taken and what that might mean for the market itself. One other area in our working group that was uh, the subject of a lot of focus and attention was hedging and collateral recognition, and we put a lot of work into that, John, as you recall. The committee has made some improvements in, in those areas of collateral recognition and hedging. Do you think the final standard goes far enough, though? Do you think they, they've done enough or do you think they've more to do? Yeah, I think to your point about, oh, you know, what is enough, and I think obviously as part of the industry, they basically wanted to adopt an approach of hedging very similar to what we are familiar with in, in traditional finance, i.e. that in a, in a context of, of a crypto assets derivative, uh, it falls within the same bucket where the other sort of asset classes like FX, rates, credit, where it could be netted off in one single bucket to arrive at a single amount. Then I think there is an acknowledgement that at this point, uh, given the sort of lack of, of historical data, because crypto assets, um, you know, it's only started off in 2008 with, with Bitcoin. I think the concern was, was there's not enough data points, information out there to actually know uh, what, how they behave. And I, I think one of the things that, that, that they have done is to provide for what we call limited hedging as opposed to full flat hedging, which the industry have initially proposed. So what do I mean by that? 
Now, in the final crypto standards that, that the BCBS has, has finalized, they have recognized you know, hedging with respect to uh, certain types of, of group 2A crypto assets, i.e. these are crypto assets that, that meet certain criteria such as threshold, market capitalization, trading volume, price observations, liquidity is in a futures market. I think based on a, a combination of, of factors, uh, you know, you know, the final standards do allow uh, limited uh, hedging within uh, the sort of crypto assets that meets those requirements. Now, I think the BCS opens a window that they will sort of closely monitor some of these thresholds and the degree of hedge recognition that Group 2A uh, classification permits. So basically, they're not setting this in stone. What it's saying is the BCBS uh, final standards, it's an evolving one. They start off with something that they believe currently market will be able to, to conduct, but they're happy to, with given data and analysis, the analysis, I think they just remain open uh, in terms of revisiting some of the thresholds, some of the criteria. But I think to that extent, I think it would, that is a good starting point for banks to undertake uh, certain types of hedge recognition for Group 2A crypto assets. The second point relates to your point on collateral. I think in, in respect of collateral, what is being recognized as collateral uh, in, in its eligible collateral that banks can take uh, in, in respect of, of crypto assets is, is obviously uh, your traditional tokenized securities and also group 1B, uh, which is in the debt context, um, is stable coins. Now, under the final standards, group 1B crypto assets it's not permitted to be recognized as eligible collateral for the purpose of calculating regulatory capital requirements. I think the reason is BCBS intends to monitor this treatment and assess whether uh, Group 1B crypto assets, for example, stable coins, uh, have the required characteristic to receive recognition as collateral for capital uh, purposes. I think one of the concerns they have is with respect to correlation risks, uh, and, and also whether the group one assets like stablecoin withhold its value in times of stress compared to traditional types of collateral like you know treasuries, uh, you know, you know, G10 currencies, normally in traditional finance. If you look at recent events, there are certain types of what we call stablecoins that have actually lost its pact. One is obviously the algorithmic stablecoins that are not backed by anything other than algos. The second relates to uh, asset-backed stablecoins that are either backed by fiat currency, combination of crypto, or what we call commodities. As history has shown um, you know, in recent events, even some asset-backed stablecoins have briefly lost its pact, i.e. break the buck, even in times of stress. And I think with that kind of volatility, I think uh, it's reasonable to expect uh, the Basel uh, committee, including the members, to take a very cautious approach when it comes to recognizing stablecoins as a form of eligible collateral, un unlike your traditional types of collateral, which I just described. I think uh, they're great points, John, and, uh, and I'd, I'd like to uh, 
extend the conversation a bit on something you said in, the, in your first point was about uh, the evolution and the approach that the regulators uh, appear to be taking in line with the evolution of the market itself, the evolution of their regulatory approach. And the committee appears to be adopting a, a more dynamic approach to the evolution of the regulatory framework in keeping with, again, the advocacy. This is something we pushed uh, very hard for, for them to remain, uh, you know, not, not set a, a very conservative, rigid standard in place without uh, room to move. And in the final standard, they've highlighted a number of uh, elements which will be the subject of ongoing analysis and potential vision review and revision. So taking that a bit further, what elements of the standard do you believe will be the most important for that sort of ongoing focus and, and potential review as the market evolves? Yeah, I think your point about the evolution standards is a good one. And in the sort of BCBS standards, uh, the Basel Committee have listed out a number of key areas that require what we call monitoring. And he has flagged up front in particular the types of area we talk about in terms of how they may approach what we call a dynamic approach. The first being uh, looking at whether they, we should, they should introduce new quantitative tests to distinguish stable coins that are suitable for group one qualification. The second relates to the use of permissionless blockchain, whether the deployment of public permissionless blockchain should be capable of qualifying of group one treatment. Uh, obviously, the current standards it, it, it appears to rule this out on a blanket basis. The other point that, that are open in terms of monitoring is whether, as I mentioned earlier, group 1B crypto assets, i.e. stablecoin, is capable of qualifying as eligible collateral for credit risk mitigation purposes. The current standard reserves this status for group 1A only, i.e. tokenized traditional assets, but not group 1B at this point. The criteria for hedging, as I mentioned, is certainly something that they may look at because initially they take a more cautious and conservative approach, but that they have indicated they're prepared uh, with more data and the passage of time to relook at the criteria and application of hedging recognition criteria for group two crypto assets. The other point they are also looking at is relates to what I deem as exposure limit. So in terms of the exposure limit, they have actually said that banks should aggregate crypto asset exposure should not exceed the maximum of 2%, but ideally they want to keep them below 1% of the aggregate exposure. Now, obviously, on the face of it, it may look small, but I think what the Basel Committee wants to do is to say, you start off with those thresholds and they are prepared to revisit this if, if, you know, with more data points. And this would obviously have significant implications going forward on how regulators tweak some of these initial standards that have set out on the 16th of December. I agree with your views on those and the, the key areas that they are looking to uh, continually review. Uh, we talked a bit at the beginning about the importance of collaboration. It's been quite a collaborative process. For me, I've been doing this for a number of years now and I know you have as well. More than any other promulgation of any regulatory standard I've been involved in, has this been one where there's been a, a totally genuine consultation where they have taken on board uh, submissions by, by industry and made uh, a, a number of very uh, welcome adjustments. 
And I think that collaboration will be important uh, ongoing. I, I'd be interested in furthering this discussion a little bit, John. Uh, in general terms, what do you think will be important from a regulatory standpoint as we move forward? What what sort of approach do you, would you like to see regulators adopt so we do end up in the, an appropriate uh, space in regard to regulatory and supervisory framework uh, for, for the crypto asset, uh, asset class? Right. I think to, to your point on the sort of regulatory approach that one to take, I think there's a recent report that was issued by the BIS uh, after the sort of implosion of FTX, looking at what should be the ideal regulatory approach in terms of crypto assets. Now, the recent high-profile failures of FTX and other crypto firms have reunited the debate on the appropriate policy response to address the risks in crypto, including through regulations. There are obviously interconnections with the real economy and trade finance, although at the moment uh, it hasn't spilled over to, to the financial system, but the risk is as institution, credit institution, financial institution move increasingly into this, what we call digital assets and tokenization of real, real economy, it, 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 that, that spillover interconnectedness becomes more real. Now, the other point that you're concerned about is what we call shadow financial functions or shadow banking. They enable crypto markets to actually operate outside of the regulatory parameters. And we have now seen uh, in the crypto assets world, the sort of unregulated high leverage liquidity and maturity mismatches, substantial information asymmetry, and these obviously have caused a lot of concerns because of the lack of a appropriate risk management. There's no ring-fencing the business lines, uh, inappropriate management of conflict of interest. And I think authorities now are grappling with three very different approaches. The first option is to ban certain specific activities altogether. The middle ground approach is to isolate crypto from traditional finance activities, i.e. the real economy, and contain it within a very uh, confined area. And the third approach, which is a more progressive approach, is to regulate the sector in a manner akin to traditional finance, i.e. if it's the same activity, same risk, same regulatory outcome. I think central banks and public authorities now are working hand in hand to make what we call traditional finance more attractive one key option which, which gaining currency is to get public and private sector to work together to ensure there's a same level playing field as traditional finance move closer into what we call the tokenized economy, especially with tokenization of, of, of real asset, is to perhaps have what I just mentioned, same activity, same risk, same regulatory outcome. And then that sort of third approach seems to be at this point in time, the sort of the preferred approach. Partly one, it sets the same level playing field, it reduces regulatory arbitrage, and also it provides clarity for both the financial institution as well as unregulated institution that wants to enter into the regulated space that they ideally should be one standard they should adopt to. So I think that's the kind of thinking that, that we are seeing increasingly being pursued at this point in time. I agree, and I think it's I think it's an encouraging trend going at different speeds. We'll talk about that in a minute. There is a question I do want to ask you about that. 
but I think it is heading in the right direction in terms of the approach and the collaboration is very important. We're talking a lot about the um, the regulation and, and the rules and so on, but happening alongside that is the actual market itself. And one thing, uh, although I've been doing this regulatory work for you know a number of years now, my original background, I spent more than 20 years in investment banking originating debt and, and capital transactions, including uh, regulatory capital uh, and arranging it for, for clients uh, in my investment banking background. So I've always tried to bring a, um, a so what uh, approach to, to regulation, not just what does it say, but what does it mean? What does it mean for balance sheets? What does it mean for investors? What does it mean for the markets? So I, I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about the actual market itself, John, um, because there's been a lot of attention uh, in, in this space. Um, I'd like to hear your feedback uh, in terms of how you think the, the crypto market assets evolving recently. There's been a lot of news and volatility in the space. You mentioned the failure uh, of the FTX platform, which <laughs> gained, a, gained a lot of uh, attention in the media. There's been issues last year with uh, stable coins, the Terra Luna, uh, episode in particular was uh, was fairly prominent in the media. Uh, do you feel the market has gone a little quieter in the light of that volatility in the second half of last year? And related to that, do you think customers are now taking a little bit more of a measured approach in considering their participation in the asset class? Yeah, I think um, on your question, there's a great question. And I think in terms of what we're seeing in the market, uh, of the aftermath of, of, of a number of uh, insolvency scandals that affects obviously the crypto market world. But I think one thing that's important for audience to recognize is when we talk about the world of digital assets, it's not just purely crypto assets that we talk about. Obviously, crypto assets is one that, that captures the sort of headlines. But I think what we are seeing, especially um, in last week, uh, after a week of you know a lot of discussion and divorce, is that the pendulum has now swung from just purely focusing on crypto activities to real world asset tokenization. So as you can see from a number of institutions out there, uh, obviously the, the headlines we have seen from Larry Fink and BlackRock, they're basically saying the future of private market is a tokenization of real assets. So I think what we're seeing now is, is the recognition that the, the technology that initially was adopted by cryptocurrencies if it's well or properly designed with a well-taught ecosystem, could actually address some of the sort of pain points that we see in our traditional markets, such as inefficiency in the pre- and post-trade settlement cycle, uh, reducing credit, you know, settlement cycle, and henceforth reducing credit exposure to one parties, uh, you know, in automation of certain types of activities, such for reducing transactional costs, especially cross-border payments. And then also the, the increasing uh, sort of uh, tokenization of, of private markets that, that could unlock liquidity and provide access uh, to a new set of customers that previously uh, were locked out by, by, by the traditional way of doing things. So it creates what we call operational efficiencies, liquidity, new business model, and the new ways of, of doing things at, at what we call a much automated, more efficient, and a more resilient ecosystem is properly designed and well thought of. Now, I think that's the kind of things we're looking at. The other thing that we are also increasingly seeing is central banks now looking at the idea of tokenized money, uh, i.e., uh, you know, the sort of in, in the context of, of central bank digital currencies, 
both in the retail and, 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 and obviously in the cross-border wholesale uh, CBDCs, as we speak to date, 90% of central banks globally are either researching, piloting, or having some sort of a, a, a pilot project looking at the feasibility of central bank digital currency. There are four jurisdictions to date that have actually deployed CBDC live, which is the Bahamas, the Eastern Caribbean, uh, Nigeria, uh, the state of Nigeria, and obviously China, and, and we, we have started its own CBDC in, in, in its much sort of phase approach. I think we will then see the world where money is, is, is digitalized, and we will see the what we call digital version of, of money. And I think what, what is interesting is, is that what we will see is the atomic settlement of not just your, your real assets or settlement assets, but also currencies. As we note today, the cross-border payment is opaque, it's expensive, it's slow. It doesn't operate on 24 hours on a, on a seven-day basis. And I think this is the kind of stuff that, that both regulators and, and private sectors are working together to address some of these pain points with respect to cross-border payments and lowering the cost of, 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 of remittance and obviously increasing financial inclusion. Now, to the point on, in terms of the crypto world, uh, what we are seeing now is there is a real focus on counterparty risk. In the past, people were focused more on yields. So, so you know, how much does this crypto assets yield? What can we do with that? How much can we take? With obviously the implosion and, 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 and the fallout from FTX, Celsius, know your counterparty is back in Fed. What I mean by that is you need to make sure you select the right counterparty, one that is what we call regulated, well-capitalized, and with respect to your assets, i.e. custody, it is important to know where your assets lies. As the court proceeding in the US with respect to Celsius of evidence, in terms of business, when we look at staking, the, the assets that the client thought that they, they own when they stake their crypto assets to Celsius do not belong to the client as the court has adjudicated. Because the terms of business is clearly indicated when you stake your assets, it is it rests with the you know with the crypto asset service provider because the terms explicitly say so. And I think it's important now when people look at uh, custody is to ensure whether the, the assets that they think they have are segregated and ring fenced from the insolvency risk of their counterparty and also, fell, uh, and also the credit service provider. If you look at this week alone, the New York DFS have actually issued a virtual currency guidance that specifically addressed the point that when New York State licensed uh, entities do undertake custody activities, they got to make it clear that the custody assets are clearly segregated and ring fenced from the corporate assets of the custodian. And the terms and condition must make it clear uh, that aspect. And I think there is a real focus now on counterparty risk, selection of counterparty, ensuring where your risk lies, terms and condition, 
and and also ensuring that uh, you know your your sort of risks are mitigated by 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 having what we call collateralization approach. So these are obviously evolving theme, but it is something that crypto assets world are now grappling with. Uh, which we are already very familiar in what we call traditional finance, collateralization, mitigation of counterparty risks, and then also ensuring that your settlement risk, settlement finality, certainty of terms, and obviously, last but not least, insolvency risks of counterparty are addressed. Really good points, John, and I, I, I think um, it's a, some of the volatility has allowed the market to pause, take a breath, and, and go back to the, some of the fundamentals that are critical. Now, I remember saying in a, at a panel many years ago, risk culture is the new black. I, I think risk culture is back in black <laughs> in, 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 in favour at the moment, in particular, uh, people are revisiting the importance of risk management, risk uh, culture, and, and the for this new asset class, and as you say, making taking much more appropriate uh, due diligence uh, in relation to counterparties in particular. Let's talk a bit more about that. And, and in relation to something you mentioned before, the approaches that some different jurisdictions have been taken, uh, because we have seen different jurisdictions move at different speeds in this in this uh, area. Uh, and I'd like to get your view. Do you think that uh, there's a risk that some jurisdictions, which have been more progressive, more proactive in their approach to the technology and the asset class, and they consider the benefits that technology can bring, may end up significantly ahead of some others who've been uh, much more conservative, um, taking very much a closed uh, book or closed door approach to the technology in the space. And, and therefore, do you think there's a risk we could end up with a broadly bifurcated global market? And what I mean by that is a risk where you sort of have the haves and the have-nots in terms of appropriate access to the asset class uh, around the world in different jurisdictions. Do you have any views uh, in relation to that? Yes, uh, th that's a very good question. If you look at what's happening around the world, um, we have seen uh, crypto asset service provider, some of them are located in what we call more progressive, more proactive jurisdiction with respect to uh, the approach to DLT, blockchain, and, and crypto assets in particular. And obviously, there are some countries that have basically banned crypto asset activities, such as China. Uh, but, but I think the realization now among regulators is those activities doesn't really disappear. It ends up in cross-border, but, but given the fact that uh, public blockchain and, and crypto assets is borderless, there are ways where their citizens are getting around it. But I think what is more important, I think increasingly so, is global coordination among the major jurisdiction to ensure that there is a comprehensive uh, crypto asset regulation that captures the types of activity that, that parties should address, the mischief, the market abuse, and also ensuring that it's not just comprehensive, it's consistently applied. Key to that is enforcement, right? One of the things you could create a lot of regulations, but if the regulations have no bite, no teeth, it's very easily it would be ignored. And I think the what we're seeing now is increasingly regulators are talking to each other, they're sharing information, and also uh, they're also allowing for, you know certain extradition where we've seen with some enforcement that, that has taken place. 
where activities were carried out offshore, targeting U.S. citizens on unlicensed crypto assets. And, and we have actually seen certain types of extradition uh, being, being enforced. And I think increasingly that will show that you can't really conduct your activities in lightly, light touch regulation and expect that you can actually behave the way you did. And I think the space where those players are playing is only going to shrink. As we speak today, institutional customers now are demanding or rather expecting serious players to be located and domiciled in well-regulated jurisdiction as opposed to lightly regulated jurisdiction, none at all. So obviously there would be a small space where people might operate in unregulated jurisdiction, but if you're talking about institutional participation, especially with respect to the partition of, of banks and, 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 and regulated uh, institution, more and more of them are asking the types of questions. Are we dealing with the license activities? Do you have the right capital? What license do you have? What activity do you have? And, and, and also, these are the kind of probing questions people are asking post-FTX, post the sort of fallout of, of a number of crypto assets players out there. Yep. I think they're really good points. And it reminds me of the, the overarching philosophy we brought to the uh, consultation collaboration process over the last couple of years is that um, the regulatory framework shouldn't be so preclusive as to overly restrict the participation of, you know, appropriately and prudentially regulated uh, institutions because of the benefits they bring in terms of risk management frameworks, due diligence approaches, the customer protection focus. That, that those organisations bring to the table. So you then you need to end up with an appropriately structured framework which allows appropriate participation by uh, those institutions because of those benefits and the market then can evolve in a, a much more uh, appropriately regulated and protective way for, for all concerned. Look, we've really come to the end of our time, John. It's been a great discussion. However, I always like to give our, our guests a final uh, opportunity to any any final comments you, you'd like to make uh, on the regulation or the space or the market itself before we before we close. Sure, and I think the sort of things that that is important is, is to sort of look at as I mentioned earlier, crypto asset is not one dimensional, right? As I mentioned, I mean it talk, talks about crypto assets are more broadly digital assets. It cover a whole spectrum of you know what we call uh, digital representations of assets of value. I think increasingly we are seeing now uh, where certain types of activities that are speculative in nature, where they fall short of certain standards that we expect, uh, such as market abuse, fraud, front running, do expect uh, regulations will come down hard and then on, on what we call errant players. But with respect to certain types of credit assets that, that are creating values out there, like for example, uh, you know, the digital art. Uh, and we increasing are seeing digital fashions, uh, you know, and, and also now in tokenization of, of financial assets. And also you know, we have increasing seeing tokenization of, of, of arts and, and carbon credits. These are things that potentially could unlock values and create uh, a, a new business model. And I think increasingly uh, regulators do appreciate that it's not a one size fit all. So when we look at regulation in the space, we should also be regulating activities uh, that provide us back to the same mantra. If it is the same uh, activity, it poses the same risk, then it should be subject to the same regulatory outcome. 
But that should not apply to all like all crypto assets because certain types of creators do not in itself raise the same concerns of certain types of activities that we just spoke about. So the approach is do not apply a one-size-fits-all approach, but at the same time, the regulatory approach, one has to be nimble, it should be adaptable, and it also should bear in mind striking a fine balance between fostering innovation and mitigating risk that might, might pose a larger financial stability risk in, in the financial system. Yeah, good points, John, and um, I think we've got a long road ahead of us. It's going to be a long evolutionary process for the evolution of the, the regulatory framework in line with what is a fast evolving and constantly changing uh, asset class and market space. But it's, it's encouraging that the technology is getting the due uh, you know, the technology hasn't been thrown out with the bathwater and some of the volatility issues that have happened with some of uh, the incidents. I think it's important we keep uh, our eyes on that. And so you've made some great points about the value and the benefits uh, of it in, in keeping with also at the same time having a, an appropriately structured framework that allows uh, a protective and well-regulated well uh, asset class to evolve. So thank you, John. It's been a great discussion. Um, I'm very pleased you could join us and I hope uh, everybody has, has enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. So thank you. <laughs>